Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 49, the one about skills for the future of work, Lego, Wine Apps, Glide Apps, and Skyfall. Let's get on with the show. Well, hello and welcome to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are back for more news, tech content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. I'm joined by the man on a mission to keep marketing simple, the voice of the marketing finance podcast, and the author of Cats Matter Marketing Plans. I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Oh, thank you so much. And of course, my co-host is also a man on a mission, this time to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. Please welcome Monsieur Pascal Fintoni. (laughs) Thank you very much. And thank you to your listeners and viewers for your support. If you can tell that we're in a very, very chirpy mood, it's because, of course, we are approaching our one-year anniversary. Yes, indeed. A year ago, Roger and I got together with a silly idea of bringing a bit of light, light entertainment, but also you know, advice and tools and tactics to make you a better marketer and content marketer. But also because the last two weeks, Roger, we've had some lovely reactions and comments on the interweb. I'm thinking of Mark Masters, Glenn Gears, you know, who got in touch all the way from the US, and Rachel Extens, Phil Goodwin. We also have Richard Sova, I'm going to say the French way, Callie Willows, Tom Bailey, Jeff Aiken, Laura Perman, um, Michelle MacArthur, and Chris Nightingale and Phil Gorman as well. It's just been, it's wonderful to know people are appreciating the work. Yeah, actually, Richard Sylvain that you saw, saw there, I went to university with him <laughs> and I was absolutely delighted when I saw his face pop up in the uh, in the LinkedIn feed the other day. Uh, and he's one of those people I've just not seen for so long. And you always get that little, oh, look, it's Richard, or we used to call him Dill at university. I'm pretty sure he doesn't go by that nickname anymore 30 years on, but it was it was glorious to see him pop up. That's the thing about social media. You know, we don't always know who's seeing it. I've had many Zoom calls or, you know, encounters where people say, oh, I listened to the podcast. I said, do you? Because, uh, you know, we just don't know. So do drop us comments and likes and reactions. It's, it always makes a difference. I've had a quick glance at the notes for today, Roger. It's a packed one and we've got a very very special film to review in our marketing so let's get started with in the news according to a survey by wonderkind 51 percent of consumers say they have started to receive more impersonal or irrelevant marketing communications over the past 12 months and ryanair has invited seven customers from six european countries to join a customer advisory panel and make recommendations to improve the airline services and customer care Pinterest has announced the platform will ban all adverts featuring weight loss language or imagery in an effort to remove multi-level marketing distributors and other shady scammers. Research from BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT, has found that almost 70% of employers are struggling to find workers with the right digital skills, which is costing British industry billions. Pizza chain Papa John's has been fined by the Information Commissioner's Office for sending more than 160,000 nuisance messages, with one customer claiming they had received almost 100 messages within two months. While small and medium-sized British businesses selling in Amazon recorded over £3.5 billion in export sales last year, according to the platform, the top five categories were home, health and personal care, toys, apparel and beauty. 
Instagram has published its 2021 rich list. Number one is Cristiano Ronaldo with an average earning of 1.6 million per post, followed by Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Selena Gomez, who earn an average of 1.5 million per post. Goodness, well, John Lewis is planning to build 10,000 rental homes over the next 10 years. Some properties could be built on John Lewis's car parks, near distribution centres and above Waitrose stores. Wow. Do you want to live in a John Lewis? Well, you can help. I couldn't help but chuckle because of this image of the car park and so on. But I suppose you and I are not the right demographics. We live in the countryside or certainly rural areas. So the idea of going towards car parks, distribution centers or above a busy store leaves me cold. But um, we know there's a crisis in the UK, certainly, in terms of um, good rental properties. Um, in the news item, they also announced that you have the choice. You could use and rent John Lewis's furniture or have your own as well. Yeah, I mean, we've said on the show before, Pascal, that we shouldn't assume that once the pandemic's over, that we should all pile back into the cities and go back to the offices to work. And maybe the, the city centres need to be re-imaged and become more like entertainment hubs, which would make sense that things like John Lewis and, and perhaps offices of great big consultancy firms might be turned into accommodation instead. I've been wondering whether they have some data or they, they are kind of putting a very safe bet on the fact that people will travel less by car or actually access the online you know, shopping more. Therefore, they have all this kind of equity or this estate that they can convert into rental properties. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it absolutely makes sense. Um, you just hope that you know, it does conjure up these dismal images of dank, <laughs> gloomy car parks, doesn't it? But I'm sure that they'll be able to spruce them up somehow. But most car parks, as far as I know, don't actually have windows. So they're going to have to do something to make them feel less like prison cells and more like accommodations. I would imagine so. So let's wait and see. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, they, I'm sure they have plans, but I, I'm guessing it's about using what they own in terms of land in, in, a, in a more sensible way. So let's go straight into the rant of the week, which is about email marketing. You read <laughs> two news. So 51% of consumers receiving more rubbish for the past 12 months and Papa John's being fined for sending lots of rubbish. And of course, my inbox and your inbox are also testament that things are just going a bit silly at the moment. Yeah, I mean, you know, Pascal, that I do a segment in my talks where I, I, I say that I signed up for a webinar and the webinar is like a month away and I get one or two emails a week in the lead up and then in the week before they start becoming couple of times a day and then in the day before there's like one every hour and the guy who was organizing the webinars east coast america so when i wake up in the morning there are like eight emails each on the hour eight hours to go seven hours to go and you think come on you know we've really got to the stage now where marketing has potentially be has crossed the line to become so annoying and we we should you know it's this constant rant that we have that digital marketing has crossed the line and it's all about numbers and it's all about getting eyeballs on screens, number of likes and stuff like that. And unless, But unless it's engaging, it's going to annoy your customer and annoyed customers are going to unsubscribe. They're not going to buy from you. They're going to block you. It, it's just not worth it. Put some more thought into engaging the customer. And if that means 
less emails but more engaging emails and that's got to be the way forward I, I just don't know why this still carries on uh, I, there's two school of thoughts really Roger one it's working as in you know a small number of people but actually you get results so it's worth it's worth the fine it's worth the bad PR in, in podcasts such as this one and of course the mainstream press or people are just negligent they just can't tell whether it's working or not. they're just having a task that they want to complete and move on to the next thing uh, but talking of attempts to do things better Ryanair was not always mentioned for all the right reasons putting together a customer advisory panel I mean to begin with if I was on a panel I would try and pull apart their website but by the by do you think that's an attempt to you know counterattack you know some of the bad press they've had recently I mean I, I, I have a I have a real weird relationship with Ryanair as you know they kidnapped me about 10 years ago and I I just refused to travel with them until very recently before the pandemic I had to fly with them and it was still a pretty grim experience so kudos for them to forgetting a customer advisory panel in place but the key thing is will they actually listen to what is being said to them but then on the other side of the coin these seven people that they've got, if those seven people are happy with Ryanair, dirt cheap prices, and the payback for that, if that's the right word, is, is crap service and being boxed into an aircraft, you know, really tight seating and, and, and all of that sort of thing, then the, these people might just tell them that they're fine and carry on doing all of the stuff that you're doing. If I was on the panel, <laughs> I'd be saying, you know, improve your website, improve your service, give us a bit more legroom, and for the love of goodness, serve us the coffees before you try to flog us the, the, the scratch cards. <laughs> yeah, I tell you what, if, if I hope they do a um, you know user journey of their website, though they, they have to to sort, sort this out anyway. Torn between having a go at um, you know Instagram publishing the rich list, what's the point? <laughs> the rich are getting richer. But I want to talk about Pinterest very briefly before we move on to the next segment. This idea of a platform like Pinterest taking decisions about what's in and what's out. Now, in terms of their decision, I think those multi-level channel marketings and, and shady scammers offering tablets and all sorts to help people lose weight, I think that's the right thing. But there's been complaints, obviously, about social media platforms sometimes not doing enough or doing too much, as in, you know, who are you to forbid people from communicating messages? So that's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think it's it's got to be a very very fine balance, hasn't it? I mean, when does it become almost too almost like censorship, um, and when does it become regulation? I guess, and and yeah, I'm, I'm all for clamping down on these people who are scamming. And let's face it, the number of scams in all sorts of industries, whether it's whether it's uh, weight loss, whether it's financial services, it, there doesn't seem to be a day goes by when, again, you either get text, phone calls, or or emails from dodgy sources. So, yeah, let's clamp down on it. But I hope that Pinterest don't rely upon some sort of algorithm to do this, which inadvertently penalises legitimate people. And that there is some sort of human element within this process, which means that legitimate people aren't affected by what they're doing. Thank you very much so again for sharing you know, your reaction to the news. Let's slow things down with the content spotlights. Now in this segment, Roger and I surprise each other with a discovery from the interweb, a podcast, an article, a video. So what have you got for us this week, Roger? 
Pascal, recently um, I did a, 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 a content spotlight about using the right sort of phrases when you're talking to people. And it was a really simple one. I think there was only three of them. And, and But it really had a profound effect on me. And I sort of maybe inadvertently been looking for similar sort of things. And there was a couple of news items which caught my attention this week from, again, big industries. And I'm not going to name names because I don't think that we we need to do that on this show. But one of them was a fairly high-profile businessman who appears on a TV show, so that might give it away a little bit. But he was making some really quite um, derogatory comments about some people's anxiety about going back to work after the pandemic and then I read another news article about a very famous chef who might have been allowing bullying to go on in his restaurants and it just brought me this this whole sort of back to this whole idea of leaders and how leaders should lead and be empathetic with their people. And I came across this article, and it's and it's on a website called Parade, which I don't think I've come across before, but it was the headline that grabbed my attention. And it says, want to display your active listening skills? Try using these 33 powerful phrases. And the article is written by Judy Kutsky. Um, so Judy thanks for the article really interesting I don't propose to read out all 33 uh, phrases Pascal I'm sure you'll be relieved to hear that Uh, but again there's nothing at all rocket science about this it's just things that really should be common sense but I think that a lot of the time Common sense seems to go out of the window, especially as businesses get bigger and small companies become big corporates. So, for example, you know, you're having a conversation with somebody and this whole idea is, are you actually listening to them or are you just hearing them? And there's a real difference there because you can sit there and hear somebody but you're not actually listening to what they're saying it's just like background noise and your mind as a boss or as a consultant or whatever it might be might just be thinking ahead to what the next question is you want to ask and this article is saying no 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 use these phrases to show that you're genuinely listening to what people are saying so things like number one please tell me more I mean that sounds really obvious doesn't it but People don't use things like, and and just a little prompt like go on, um, leaning in towards people and showing that you're interested rather than leaning back and putting your hands on your head or something that is a little bit more aggressive, maintaining eye contact. And, and then as we start progressing through the numbers and we get four, five, six, we start talking about paraphrasing people without parroting. And if somebody says to you how they feel, so uh, the example that uh, Judy gives is that somebody might feel that people misinterpret what you say or people take things that you say the wrong way. And what you can do there is you can actually replay that to people and say something like, yeah, it can be frustrating when people misinterpret what you say, but... Have you thought of this? And you're effectively playing back to people what the situation is. you know. And things like, please give me more details. Let me see if I got that correct. Are you saying that? And again, I'm not going to read out all 33, but 
this article is dead simple and I think that it's well worth you could read it in two minutes but I think it's well worth sitting down for 10 to 15 minutes and going through all 33 and actually thinking about your role whatever that might be we're in marketing so we do a lot of consultancy but if you're a a leader of a company if you're a leader of a team have a think about some of these phrases and ask yourself how often am I using these phrases and if you're not then it's a massive opportunity to become a more engaging leader, consultant, or or whatever it is you're doing. So it's all about listening, not about hearing. Wonderful. And that reminds me uh, a lot of situation I find myself as a consultant when you go in and support teams and usually have to report back your work to the senior management team. And very often what, what they'll say to me is, so I've been promoted almost within the organization, but I've not been given the training to be a team leader. I've not been given the training to supervise others. Uh, I've just I've just been given the job because I've been here longer than most. And I think that's also then uh, running a parallel to your own self-development. So you should also be curious about those things. And, and what I like about those articles, they can also remind you of things that perhaps you knew, but you've not practiced for a while. And and I've got to put into this, I'm, I'm assuming that it has must have been very, very hard as a team leader to have countless Zoom calls or Teams calls. And as a result of which, maybe indeed your interpersonal skills and active listening may have been slightly hindered or become more dormant. And just to kind of reignite your interest in being that, uh, yeah, have a positive impact as a leader, I think that's a great, great addition to what you can do. Yeah, I, I, and you're absolutely right. Uh, it's, it's human nature. Our brains are, are constantly thinking ahead. And when we're listening to somebody, we might inadvertently start to come up with an answer for them or think ahead to the next question. And what we really need to do is to train our brains to slow down and just listen to what they're saying and use these sorts of phrases to encourage it. So, Pascal, what have you got for me this week? Well, this will not surprise our regular viewers and listeners, but I have something that has a strong correlation with (laughs) your selection for today. So this is actually the summary of, of a research paper, a research exercise undertaken by the famous McKinsey firm. Now, I became aware I became aware of this article thanks to actually a presenter. I was hosting a virtual conference a few days ago, and we had this digital transformation consultant, Mark Carlicar, who opened the conference, talking about the future of work and how Digital transformation is not just about the purchasing of tech, but also creating a more human-centered working environment. And he gave this incredibly inspiring presentation using examples from multinationals around the world. But he did also spend just a moment to give us an overview of a recently published paper. Now, the title is, These are the skills you will need for the future of work. And this was created and compiled by a group of individuals working for McKinsey called Marco Dondi, Julia Clear, Frédéric Panier, York Schubert. And this was published in collaboration with the World Economic Forums. It's actually, just as a quick aside, Roger, the World Economic Forum, what a treasure trove of information as well for all the things we talk about. But what they did really was to explore the future of work in some details, and they wanted to understand the impact of technology 
AI, automation, machine learning, robotics, things that you and I have covered before, and asked a question, what could government and indeed uh, large employers do to make sure that citizens are future-proofed with their skill set because things are going to change? So they surveyed about 18,000 people across Europe, and they come up with some observations, conclusions, but also recommendations. And what they discovered that there are 56, 56 from the foundational skills that would really help people, citizens, to future-proof their employability. And what they've done, Roger, is those 56 are organized into four major groups of skill sets, and then you have some subcategories. So the hyperlink is in the show notes, as is your article. So I'm not going to go through all 56. What I, saw, I thought I would do is read out to you the four major groups, then the subcategories, and see whether you recognize some of the skills and also talents, as they call them, that will really make a difference in someone's career and also job satisfaction. So group number one is called cognitive skills. Number two, interpersonal skills. Number three, self-leadership. That's interesting. And number four, digital, which I want to spend just a moment on. Now, within cognitive skills, there are subcategories of critical thinking, which includes active listening, mm. <laughs> planning and ways of working, communication, and mental flexibility. In interpersonal, they have mobilizing systems, so how to get things started, developing relationships and teamwork effectiveness. In self-leadership, they have self-awareness and self-management. Entrepreneurship, interestingly, and goals achievement. And in digital, they have digital fluency and citizenship, software use and development, and understanding digital systems. I would spend just a moment to expand on digital being my specialism, Roger. And in digital fluency and citizenship, they have split into digital literacy, so making mm -hmm. sense of the information you get online, digital learning, so taking the initiative with your own self-development, digital collaboration. But the last one, which has, to me is so important, bear in mind what we discussed a moment ago in, in, the, in the news, digital ethics. And what I take from this is that we need to find a way as leaders, governments, and more to make people behave more ethically as citizens, but also professionals online. In the Understanding Digital Systems, they highlighted cybersecurity literacy. And we know that the, the number of, of scams and fraud and, of course, victims has gone through the roof the last 12 months. And we need to find a way to protect ourselves and everybody else around us more. And they also, which I thought was fantastic, in there they have tech translation and enablement. So basically, can you explain all this in plain English? Hmm. So these are the thing of things there. Just before I invite your reaction, they also then did a bit of a survey or in terms of where are we now with the participants of the survey. And they were saying that below average were the following, planning and ways of working, communication in particular, synthesizing messages, making messages clearer. And they also found that we were below average in software use and development and understanding digital systems. Do you know, I mean, again, we, we, this is a theme that's become um, 
prevalent on this show over the last few episodes, hasn't it, Pascal? This whole going back to work. And and even today, I saw an interview with the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, and he was saying, get back to the office, get back to the office. And I'm sitting there saying, no, this is the opportunity to change the way that we do things. And I think last week we said, you know, some of the practices that we have, like working nine to five and having millions of meetings, you know, some of these go back decades to Henry Ford and meetings in the 60s when we didn't have um, communications technology. We now have this opportunity to change things. And again, these articles, my listening skills, this one about all of these different skills on top of that, are just so crucial for us to redefine and to check in with ourselves so that we can make it better for the employees make it better for the customers and ultimately hopefully make it better for the world and 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 again you know the digital stuff that you've talked about there making sure that what we do is ethical you know it isn't ethical to send a hundred emails over the course of a few days to an individual i don't think that's ethical i just think it's it's just bad practice uh so all good signposts for the way that things could be absolutely and and it's just fascinating isn't it that the conversation goes back to that so they're making recommendations and i want people to read the article it's one that you could read more than once roger because mm. they really go into the details but also it becomes like a, a tool you could like, to your point it could become a system that you use to check on yourself to talk to the team it could be something that you could use to stimulate a debate within the organization or indeed your clients but what they're saying is you know we as in society in general governments and more need to start to you know make take action so number one can we maybe use ai to our advantage to highlight learning opportunities you know we talk about lifelong lifelong learning a lot what does that mean but also where do you go so let's say you want to improve your communication skills you want to improve your active listening but how do you do that where do you go so using ai to literally find but also point your signpost to to the right courses could be important they're asking employers but also education to start to value skills as much as certification so what they're saying is you could use those 56 and literally get people to be scored against those, not just whether or not they did a good essay at the end of the year. Can you see the point there, Roger? And so the, I think those recommendations are very important. And I know that in, in truth, the UK is often ahead when it comes to looking at skills in addition to certification compared to the rest of Europe, where education still has element of being quite elitist. Mm, mm. So let, let's hope that... Uh companies might take some direction from the content spotlights that we've spotlighted this week <laughs> excellent right let's move on to the next segment roger marketing tech and apps okay roger so what have you found to make life easier as a marketer and content creator well this week is a little bit random pascal i have to say um i i, I Sometimes random's good, though, isn't it? And you just come across some incredible things that might not necessarily immediately help you as a marketer, but might get your creative juices thinking in another direction. Now, here's a couple of things that I came across this week almost by accident. So I mentioned last week that this new 
St. James Quarter in Edinburgh opened with the the rather uh, strangely shaped hotel on top that a lot of people say looks like the poo emoji. Within this shopping centre is a Lego store, and the Lego store has been mobbed ever since this new shopping centre opened. So if you go into the shopping centre, you can expect to queue for quite a while to get into this shop because of the um, social distancing regulations. And for whatever reason, it just got me thinking about Lego. And so I did a Google search on Lego and I came across this amazing app which is really clever and probably completely pointless but I absolutely <laughs> okay. lo- absolutely love it so you know how you know I-, I can remember this when my son was growing up you know we would buy him Lego Star Wars this Lego City Airport that Lego TIE Fighter whatever it was and of course you get these things built but eventually the Lego gets deconstructed and gets piled into a big box and you've you've got this gigantic box full of stuff uh, and and it just sits there and you just don't know what to build it anymore and this app this is i actually can't believe i'm saying this you tip all these lego bricks onto the floor or onto a surface a table or something and you then scan it with this app it's an iphone app or an android app you scan that pile of lego bricks and it's got some sort of AI algorithm in there and it takes a view of all these bricks and then it comes back with some suggestions as to what you could build purely from the, that photograph and and it and I've watched a video and it absolutely works and it's not just random stuff there's obviously something genuinely powerful going on in the background to create something out of this pile of bricks um no matter whether it originally came from a TIE fighter or a city airport or whatever it, whatever it is. Now, I just thought to myself, this is just unbelievably fabulous, but did somebody actually ask for this? You know, how did they come up with the idea for it? You know, and uh, are they making any money from it? But it, it just blew my mind that somebody thought that there was a need for an app like this. But having said that, seeing how many people are queuing up to go into the Lego store in the new Edinburgh shopping centre, suggests that perhaps there is a market for apps like this so the lesson for me there is you know don't dismiss something that might sound totally and utterly fanciful there might actually be a need for it this is genius sorry sorry i just need to react to this This because i'm almost going to tell my sister about it with my nephews who've got boxes of lego bricks and and i tell you i suspect these these were parents during the pandemic pleading with Lego saying, can you send me more sketches? Because I think you get yeah. a map, don't you? You get a manual uh, yeah. of instructions about how to build it. But once you build it once or twice, what else can you do? So I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if people got in touch because the Lego fan base is very, very active, aren't they? I mean, they, they keep in touch with each other. They support each other. They, they really are uh, big, uh, loyal fans of the brand. And Lego does an amazing job to communicate with them. So... And look at the application in the world of business. Could you have a pile of bricks and then John Lewis can build the apartment they spoke about, you know, much easier. <laughs> yeah, and then you'll have somebody going along to Legoland in Windsor with a sledgehammer <laughs> and smashing all the buildings down and then using the app to take a photograph to see whether the app suggests that they build the Tower of London back up. It, it just absolutely boggles the mind. And, and the second one, again, is random in, in a way, uh, it's a year to, it's a year this week since we did the first, um, Two Geeks in a Marketing podcast. It's also, oh, wow. it's also a year to last night, Thursday, that my wife and I started a little trend that we've 
done ever since, and that was choosing a random bottle of red wine on a Thursday and obviously drinking it. And I tweet a photograph of the bottle out on Twitter, and I call it Random Red Thursday. And the tweet's gone out every week for 52 weeks now, and last night was the, the, the one-year anniversary. And again, that prompted me to think, oh, I've not thought about wine apps recently. So I came across this one called Vivino, the Vivino app. Now, admittedly, there are others out there that are very, very similar to what this one does. And Vivino itself is a wine merchant. But what they do is they you can use the app to take a photograph of the bottle of wine that you've got. Now, of course, mine totally random. We just basically pick one off the shelf in Tesco, in Sainsbury's, in wherever it might be. And usually we just pick it on the basis of, oh, I quite like the look of that label. You take a photograph it with the Vivino app and it does its little thinking and bang, it pops up and tells you all about this wine. And I've had a pretty much 100% success rate um, with this. The only time it didn't recognize a bottle was because I'd taken the photograph from a slightly wrong angle and it said retake the photograph in this way and it and it found the bottle of wine uh, and it tells you about the grape it tells you about the um, vintage it tells you about the processes it gives you indications as to what the uh, the flavors of the wine might be you know it gives notes of uh, vanilla or notes of blackberry all of that sort of, of stuff and I think it's absolutely fascinating and again you know they've put this app together predominantly to sell themselves as a wine merchant but they've gone further because obviously the wines that i picked they don't actually t stock as as a wine brand so they're not getting anything from my interaction with it but what they're hoping is that people like me interacting with their app yeah. will eventually make us want to buy from them and and again it's just a genius idea but it's content isn't it it's another way of giving people a bit more information about the bottle of wine that they are drinking and it it also allows you to review the wine as well and put your own little review in it and you can people can follow you and stuff like that so again nice little application which on the whole you know i would never have thought of of downloading something like that but now i have done and if we carry on doing random red for another year and beyond then each week i'll be photographing the bottle and now i'll have a better record of what we've been drinking no, absolutely. What is interesting for our viewers and listeners is whilst you know your fan base won't be as extensive as Lego, on the rare occasion you've been a little late or missed the Thursday, people are asking you, what's happening, Roger? Yeah. <laughs> where's, yeah. where's the wine? Uh, I've seen the you know, reaction on, on Twitter. Well, interestingly for me, uh, a similar theme about giving a bit extra, going further. I've been having a lot of conversation with customers recently about online customer care standing out from the crowd making you in my marketing you know being obviously engaging not an irritant and i've been doing some research even for my business because people have said to me recently you know love the content but by gun pascal it's hard to keep track or sometimes it's hard to get back to something that i want to look into and they literally have said to me if only you had like an app and I think it was just like a throwaway comment. And that got me into this research project once again, Roger. And I came across this company called Glide, glideapps.com. And if you have indeed data, 
whether that's content, um, wine list, you know, whatever you have, whether you have data that could fit into a Google Sheets, their version of Microsoft Excel, you can within minutes create a free of charge app for your customer base, for your prospects, for indeed your community. Uh, examples uh, that they have, they have uh, hundreds of templates for you to choose from. But for example, a podcast app, Roger, where you could start to group the podcast into themes and people be able to choose episodes looking at the archives of what you've done over the years with the marketing and finance podcast and make it easier for them. And I think it's all about convenience. You could also, if you are organizing a one-day conference, have an app for that. Not only can people go back and check what's happening throughout the day, but they can chat with each other as uh, attendees. You could also have a very simple CRM. Indeed, you could have a membership app. I was thinking out loud again, you know, to, to give uh, real life to this side of an app where people have bought the um, Cats Matter Marketing Plans book, but they can also access further additional resources, mm -hmm. perhaps mentioned in the book, but they can join the membership and they have an mm -hmm. app that you could have a a simple mobile store, but also the one that was very interesting for me, they also have some e-learning apps. So maybe some more private videos, maybe some some uh, tutorials and so on that is only accessible if you're part of the fan base and you can access uh, the app. So I was already impressed with A, the speed at which you can create the apps. Could it could also be, Roger, a proof of concept. So you may want to invest into creating an app but before you do so test the market with the, with the free version they also have some chargeable templates but frankly between $15 or $50 to get you know a full on e-learning e e platform i think that's really quite uh, quite uh, attractive not, not the other way in which you can give extra is on Canva. Probably the, the second or third time that Canva has made the marketing tech and apps, but they keep adding new stuff, Roger. What can you do? And recently, all of us are now able to record ourselves. So if you use any templates on Canva and you want to upload media, photography, video, whatever it might be, you can now also record yourself using webcam and microphone. So why would you want to do that? But I've got many customers who offer free of charge Canva templates for their customers, part of the content marketing, part of the added value of being part of the customer base. So what I've suggested to them is why don't you create, of course, the template, but at the top of the template, there is a video welcoming people to the Canva template, explaining how to make good use of it and letting them know how they can get in touch if you want, if you have more questions. And just think again, sometimes it's all there in front of us, but it takes a bit of creative thinking, a bit of lateral thinking or listening more actively to your customers to come up with those little small advantages that can make you stand out, but also give you more PR potentially. Yeah, this is so interesting again, what we're also finding with all this technology is that things just a few years ago, which were beyond the budgets of small companies, are now accessible to everybody. I was just thinking, um, however long ago it might be, it might have been about eight or nine years, and I was still working in big corporate at that point, and we invested in an iPhone app. And I seem to remember at the time that it was a it didn't do a massive amount, but it probably cost about twenty-five to 30,000 quid to get a company to build this app for us. Um, now, a couple of years ago, I was working with a company who were running a conference and they wanted to put an app together and a similar uh, build 
was about five grand. Um, now, effectively, you've got something here, and I assume that uh, it's relatively simple, but you can put something together again at a fraction of the cost. So it's not just the fact that we've got all this great technology available to us, it's the fact that now it's the accessibility from a cost point of view and in yeah and anything that canva do is 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 fantastic i'm a massive canva fan in fact i've got canva open on my desktop here because i've been doing some graphics for another customer but i hadn't even noticed that you could record in canva now so again something that i will check out later absolutely and just very quickly on canva i mean um this is the idea that i've got in and around customer care but of course imagine you could actually record short video messages and stitch them together on canva and create potentially a great video for you know other purposes right roger well as we say every single week none of this would be possible without the work of pioneers and visionaries from the recent and distant past let's move on to this week in history In 1844, Captain J.N. Taylor of the Royal Navy demonstrates the first foghorn. At the time, it was called a telephone to mean far signalling by loud sounds from ships or trains. In 1868, American inventor and newspaper publisher Christopher Scholes is issued a patent for the first practical typewriter and the original QWERTY keyboard layout still in use today. In 1926, the first underwater colour photograph is taken by Charles Martin and Dr. William Longley. The picture of a hogfish was captured using a waterproof housing for the camera and several pounds of highly explosive magnesium flash powder. Mm, crikey, well in 1983, Nintendo releases the Famicom system, short for Family Computer in Japan. But two years later, the Nintendo Entertainment System, NES, is launched in the US, making Nintendo the premier company in the video game industry. In 1985, German electric engineer and mathematician Karl-Heinz Brandenburg sends an email around his office announcing the mp3 file extension won a poll and that the old .bit file extension should no longer be used. The same year, 1985, Prince Charles and Princess Diana officially opened Live Ed at the Wembley Stadium in London. In the triumph of technology, the 16-hour super console was globally linked by satellite to more than a billion viewers in 110 nations. In 1991, the movie Point Break, directed by Catherine Bigelow and starring Patrick Swayze, Keanu Reeves, Laurie Petty and Gary Boosie, premieres at Avco Cinema on Wiltshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. And in 2013, the world's last telegram is sent in India as email and texting have replaced the 163-year-old service. The telegram delivery ceased in 2006 in the US and two years later in Great Britain. Wow. Wow. 2008, people were still sending telegrams. <laughs> wow. It just make you wonder, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, we need, we need to, we need to uh, launch this product. Stop. As soon as possible. Stop. Ends. <laughs> I think in my lifetime, I also my parents getting one telegram once from uh, my grandparents because uh, you know, I don't think they had a phone or anything like this, but that was just, uh, and even to me as a young child, it was a bit bizarre to have the, the postman delivering a telegram. Can I just confess that I absolutely adore Point Break, 1991 mm. movie. It is so good. And for me, 91 is the year that I arrived in the UK, as you may remember. 
and I was missing dearly the seaside. You know, I spent my youth in the uh, Atlantic coast surfing with my brothers and sisters and friends. I was missing surfing terribly because the water is far too cold in the UK, even if you go to Cornwall. And Point Break was just my fix. I kept watching it over and over again for the surfing scenes, but of course, the amazing action and thrilling chase scenes between Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those classics, isn't it? Absolute classics and probably should be featured in the film marketing <laughs> section of this podcast at some point in the future. Do you remember watching Live Ed? Live Aid, sorry, where were you? Yes. Oh, well, I mean, wow. Live Aid was just epic, wasn't it? Um, now, interestingly enough, I was actually on holiday in Spain when Live Aid went out. And I was actually on holiday with my buddies. I'm just trying to think back. It might have been the first year that I went on holiday without my parents, uh, or it might have been the second year. But of course, we were all massive, massive music fans. So there was five of us on holiday in Spain, and we were all into all the groups that were going to appear at Live Aid, Status Quo, U2, mm-hmm. um, Queen, and, and all of that. And of course, there was the there was also the Philadelphia com, uh, uh, concert happening uh, in parallel, and they sort of switched between acts during the day. Um, and of course, we were staying in Spain in an apartment which didn't have a TV. Um, and we had to go and find a bar that had a TV. And I mean, th- this is almost incomprehensible to people who, who've grown up with, with smartphones and, and massive TVs. But in those days, they weren't that as, uh, you know, uh, that uh, prevalent. And we actually had trouble finding a bar that actually had a TV. And, and eventually we did find one, and it was a relatively small, quite dingy little bar down a back street in this little village. And the, the television screen was probably no bigger than an iPad, maybe slightly bigger. It was one of those old-fashioned TVs with a great big bulbous bit at the back. Um, I, I even thinking now it may even have been black and white. No, I, I think it was definitely colour. And we stayed in this bar pretty much all day watching Live Aid. And it didn't matter that the screen was small and that the the mic that the uh, loudspeaker on the television was pretty was pretty um, ropey. The spectacle of watching that concert. And there was more people in the bar, of course, singing along to the songs. And as you would expect, as the day went on, we were drinking more <laughs> beer, and and it just become a bit more raucous. Until towards the end, it was just it was just a bit of a, a free for all rook. I mean, I've got massive memories about that. And of course, at home, back in back in the UK, my father had been ordered to record the entire thing on VHS tape, um, which he diligently did. And I think we had about seven or eight VHS tapes during the day. So when we got back from our holiday, the me and my five buddies actually went and sat in our living room on our comfy chairs and, and watched it on a relatively decent-sized TV. It, it was just incredible. We watched, I think we spent a day in different houses, so literally playing kind of uh, hopping different across different living rooms uh, throughout the day. For me, it was just this... I was just couldn't believe that all those stars had agreed to it. Yeah. Do you mean and yeah. and this brainchild of Bob Geldof and his team had come to fruition and and of course the strong message and the the the, the main thrust of was obviously raising funds to support um, Africa. And for me there's also the memory of watching the concert 
And then days later, Bob Geldof at the door, number 10, giving Margaret Thatcher a hard time because she wanted to tax the um, the concert, if you remember. Uh, which 20 years later, when they did it again, of course, the Labour government said no taxes, just yeah. as a little a little jibe. So, uh, and, and you're right, I think it's one of those where you had to be there, you had to be around. And, and I suspect for younger viewers and listeners, they can access replays on YouTube nowadays, and there must be DVDs and Blu-rays of the event. But there was just something extraordinary about the accomplishment of the event itself, but also, as mentioned a moment ago, the technology that was able to beam this concert around the world in 1985. It was just extraordinary. And, and I mean, the, the performance by Queen um, is still... And I, it's my personal opinion, but a lot of people also have this opinion. That 20-minute set that they did is one of the best performances by a rock band ever. And, you know, it was... The, I mean, I, we know that they rehearsed it to the note for weeks in advance, and I think quite a lot of the other groups didn't, and, and it mm. showed. Um, but Queen... And, and I've, I've watched quite a lot of reaction videos of youngsters now who weren't even born huh. when Live Aid happened, watching that performance by Queen, and most of them who do it almost sit there you know, with their mouths open because you just don't get people like Freddie Mercury who can control a crowd like that today. No, I think the closest I've seen was actually the uh, tribute concert to Freddie Mercury mm-hmm. and Guns N' Roses kind of opening up, you know, the, the event. That's where the closest I've seen to, you know, that, that almost symbiotic relationship between the crowd and the performers. Uh, yeah. But, um, do you know, in, in some ways, this live ed kind of um, conversation means that everything else pales into insignificance as, <laughs> as a news item. And it feels probably right that we should move on to the creator shout outs. So, Roger Edwards, who is under the spotlight this week? Well, do you know, Pascal, we do live in a mad world, don't we? And. We're coming out of the pandemic, obviously, and, and, and that's good. And, and indications are that we're, we're getting back to normal. But, you know, when the government, when the UK government stood up earlier in this week and basically said, we're taking all the restrictions away at the time when infections are rising higher than they've ever been. And the fact that even though the vaccine is working, we've not vaccinated everybody. I just sat... F- found myself sitting there saying, what the f*** is going on? What the... I'm not allowed to swear on the podcast, but you get what I mean. And I came across, Pascal, a a, a podcast with exactly that title. What the f*** is going on? F star, star, star. What the F is going on? And it's by a comedian called Mark Steele, who I have to say... I've not come across um, and he's it's a relatively new pod- podcast in fact there are only four episodes and and I put the first episode on when I was driving down to a class recently and I was absolutely in hysterics by the time I arrived where I was going because obviously it, it's, it's a little bit rude it's a little bit sweary but he articulates exactly how I feel about quite a lot of things that are happening in the world and it it, it it's a little bit like our show. There's lots of little segments and he gets people on. So there's guests coming on to talk about things, but they keep repeating this phrase, what the 
is going on. And and what I love about it is they've got about five or six, maybe even ten different jingle versions of what the is going on. One of which sounds as though it was recorded by a rock band, maybe a queen like rock band. Then you've got one that sounds like a, a choir in a church, uh, one very in- evangelistic sounding one. And and I just found myself it's it's very I don't. I can't remember the last time I listened to a comedy podcast, watched a comedy TV program that genuinely had me laughing, you know, out loud. And this was it. So, it's not really a marketing podcast. It's more of a. It's more of a fun um, shout out. But I do like exploring, as you know, humor and whether we can learn anything for putting humor into our presentations into our content. So I'm doing it anyway. So Mark Steele, thank you for what the is going on. And also, the advice that we give often, Roger, is look elsewhere for inspiration. Yes. So by exploring and reflecting on the production style and format of this podcast, you might find something that could be useful for you. That's fascinating. So for me, the spotlight is on the individual that somehow I've known for a very long time without knowing who he was. Let me explain to you, Roger. For many, many years, like you, I've been using apps, I've been exploring and using websites, I've been very useful to my business without knowing who was behind it. The gentleman I want to actually give a shout out to is James Cridland, who is the editor of Pod News. This is a daily e-briefing that you get in your inbox that gives you a quick snapshot of what's happening in the world of podcasting and audio production from different brands doing different things, buying each other out, pod, podcast jobs as well as events. And it's just a lovely things you can scan read within moments. And indeed, sometimes I've used some of the news items to inspire me for our podcast. But the reason why it is someone that has been part of my professional life for a very long time is that James Cridland is also the owner and creator of Media.info, which is the ultimate resource if you want to build a PR campaign of contacts in the world of print media, TV, and radio. And I recommend it all the time to my customers when we do content marketing strategies. He's also actually been starting audio, which is why he's also a audio futurologist since the, the 90s. He's been part and parcel of the team who b- built the first radio streaming service for Virgin Radio. He's also part of the team that worked on BBC iPlayer and Radio Player. And I almost feel a little guilty that I wasn't aware of the individual as a, as a person sooner, but um, realized that he's been part of my professional life for many, many years. So long overdue shout out through the back door in a way, thanks to his Pond News e-briefing service, which is actually a delight as well. So I'm so glad that uh, James has now uh, been given the uh, the credit that mm. he's due on the on Quite. two geeks in a marketing podcast, and, and that's what we're about, Pascal. You know, some of these people we know, some of these people are in our network. Some people aren't in our network, but we genuinely appreciate the amount of time and effort and work that goes into the content that they produce, and that's why we're so happy to give these shout outs. Uh, well said, Rod. Thank you very much. Right, it is time. Fulfill marketing. Now, Roger, typically you and I, when we do the film marketing segment, choose a film we love and then discover afterwards that the marketing campaign is quite exceptional and the source of inspiration. For this film, 
Not only do we love the film, but we knew in advance that the marketing campaign was just genius. And I just can't wait to talk to you and get your reaction on Skyfall, the 23rd James Bond movie released in 2012. Wow, Pascal. Skyfall, you're absolutely right. Phenomenal movie. Rewatched it last week. Uh, in not Almost uh, just coincidentally, uh, not in preparation for this, but obviously helped prepare for this. Uh, great film. Um, and yes, we knew, I knew a lot about the marketing that was happening because it's it's only nine years ago. But when I was looking into it in a little bit more detail over the last few days, it was one of those rabbit hole times when you just dive in and think, oh my goodness, I didn't realize they'd done this. And and look at the amount of money that was spent here. It truly is one of the most interesting and uplifting marketing campaigns. And it's not just the distributors of the film that were doing the marketing for this. They had all sorts of product placement partners, which were also running incredibly expensive campaigns as well at the same time. So the world was flooded with Skyfall stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. And this is why it's going to be exciting because, once again, I reckon there's a lot of little lessons in there for all of us as marketers, but they exploited events such as the Olympic Games. They yep. also took advantage of the fact that this was the 50th anniversary of the James Bond franchise. 62 was Dr. No, and 2012 was Skyfall. But also, as you say, were, were the partners. So what we're going to do, we're going to talk about the film um, element or the film distributors' efforts. Then we'll talk about the partners. But before we get into that, am I right in, in guessing that Skyfall is perhaps one of your favorites with um, Daniel Craig as at the helm? Yeah, and this is interesting because everybody raves about Casino Royale. That was the reboot, wasn't it? Mm. That was Daniel Craig's first film, and it was a great film, um, you know. But at the same time, they made a conscious decision to maybe move away from some of the, the cheesier elements of Bond films. So in, in Casino Royale, we didn't have Q, we didn't have Miss Moneypenny, we didn't even have the traditional opener where the, where the sort of circle goes across the front and he walks along and shoots um, a bullet at the screen. And to a certain extent, I always thought, mm, that's a little bit disappointing. They've gone away from the James Bond standard, but maybe they needed to do that to genuinely reboot it. And I think that, for me, Skyfall started to reintroduce some of those more traditional Bond elements, like we meet Q again for the first time, we meet Miss Moneypenny, and then, you know, there's maybe a few of the, the quips starting to come back. So it felt to me like it was more of a traditional James Bond film than Casino Royale was. But I didn't think they took it so far that they went cheesy and, and, and as, you know, some of the poorer uh, entries to the, to the canon earlier on. So for me, it's almost like the archetypal James Bond film of the, the Daniel Craig era. What is interesting about uh, the work with Daniel Craig, again, as James Bond, I find Casino Royale and Skyfall are the strongest. I'm really not sure about Quantum of Solace, and I was very disappointed by Spectre. There was something mm. just didn't didn't work for me. And I'm thinking, so is that what it takes? That every other James Bond is, is better, so we can really look forward to No Time to Die. Um, in terms of this film as well, 
just to give us a segue into into the to the marketing, the one thing that they did away with, um, which I thought was very interesting, was usually there's always a bit of a love affair, or there's always the Bond girl that kind of stands out and becomes almost an accomplice in in the story. And here that didn't that didn't didn't take um, place. I mean, there was definitely an attractive you know woman as part of the storyline, but there wasn't that element of you know the love affair. Yeah, again, this this, this fascinates me because. Um, I would pr- I would probably have to go back and check, but I think the first of the all of the James Bond films up until Daniel Craig finished with him <laughs> snogging a woman in some exotic location or in a in a speedboat marooned in the middle of the ocean or in the middle of a of a desert or something. It always had that ending where he went in, off into the sunset with the the Bond girl from that film, but. All of the Daniel Craig movies, the first three of them, end with him without the girl. Because in Casino Royale, Vespa Lynn dies, unfortunately, uh-huh. in, in Quantum of Solace. And I agree with you, Quantum of Solace was a bit of a mess for me. But that film ends with him just walking away into the snow. And Skyfall, again, finishes with him in M's office, the new M, saying, yep, yeah, let's get back to work. But I did wonder whether almost... The Judy Dench M was that was effectively the, the the Bond girl, the surrogate Bond girl in this movie, because obviously the latter half of the movie is all about James Bond trying to protect her from Mister Silver, who was the villain, and she she was not a Bond girl in the traditional sense, but she was a very close, almost mother like figure. I don't know whether that's the right yeah, way. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true because. It. What we do in Skyfall is explore elements of his um, younger years. We know so little. Mm-hmm. I must confess, I've not read any of the books, so maybe there's more information for people who are big, big fans of Bond and, and read the books as well as watch the films. But um, yeah, I think for me, Skyfall works because of all these elements that have been taken out and what's left is just an incredible, thrilling story. And of course, an amazing villain, uh, Javier Bardem, just does an amazing job. Yeah, I mean, that story, as he's, he, he comes down in this lift, and the lift's right in the back of the shot, and Bond sat on a chair in the, in the front of the shot, and he basically walks from the lift to Bond very slowly and tells this story about an island with rats on it and how they put the rats into a, into a box. And, 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 it, and he just delivers the story as he walks very menacingly and very slowly forward, and that is a mesmerising part of the film no action it's just a monologue bit of storytelling but the way he delivered it was really quite chilling before we move on to the marketing is it maybe one standout moment or scene for you in the skyfall um actually i'm always a big fan of the pre-credit sequences in james bond mm. films and again this one is is superb and there's the bit which i just it just made me laugh in it and again it was that sort of return to a little bit of the sort of uh, the one line as the cheesy bit so he's 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 trying to get the villain who's on this train and he and he's there's a digger i don't even know how the digger got there but there's a digger on the train and he uses the digger to sort of latch onto this train and the the train's falling apart and he basically jumps from one carriage to the other and he lands in the middle of this carriage and the carriage is disintegrating and he just takes a moment to adjust his his cufflinks before he walks forward. I just thought that is an absolutely archetypal Bond moment. Yeah, that's that's absolutely the whole chase around Istanbul and, and the train. 
for me, the, the bit that stood out, I mean, they, they're all amazing, particularly the, the, the last chapter when they go to Scotland and we discover what Skyfall stands for. But the bit in Shanghai with uh, the player with lights, neon lights against glass panes and and trying to obviously get to the baddie and so on. I thought the whole cinematography, A, would have been a nightmare practically to film, but also it just look stunning and mesmerizing. So that was great. So what we're going to do, yeah. let's go start with um, the film marketing efforts of the filmmakers themselves. And we're going to talk about the partners. So it all began almost to the, to the date a year before the film was released with Twitter. Um, the official 007 Twitter account of Facebook account sent to announce something was coming. And that is one thing that I like about the whole Bond franchise is that they keep social media going even after the film. You know, I've been quite critical, haven't we, in the past of people do social media for a few months and then literally walk away from the lot. Literally on Twitter and Facebook, even to the last week, last week, Roger, they are still promoting Skyfall with uh, um, behind the scenes stuff, with extract from the film, with stills from the film, with anniversaries, birthdays of the actors. It really feels like Skyfall is kept alive even after all, all these years because in 2021, they are still using Twitter and Facebook to promote it. Yeah, and, and I think I'm right in saying that, that Skyfall was probably the first Bond film which was a major social media campaign. And, and as you say, they started the activity 12 months before the film. And that's remarkable a remarkable way of building up the, the tension and building up the anticipation for this next James Bond film. And, and I guess the gap between Con Quantum of Solace and Skyfall was a little bit longer than normal. Um, and, and what a great way to use a new media to start getting that anticipation going. And they got thousands and thousands and thousands of hits and they really used it quite well. And I think the lesson for me is that, you know, we, we quite often are critical of people who say, oh, look, here's the latest shiny new toy clubhouse or mm. whatever it might be, TikTok. And we just need to jump onto it because you have to. You could almost say, well, is that not what the distributors were doing oh here's twitter it's a, it's it's, it's um, only been around for a little while let's dive in and use it but they used it so well and i think that's the lesson the shiny new toys are okay as long as it genuinely gets to your audience and your audience are there and i think that they used it spot on in my opinion if you go on on facebook for people who are interested literally go on the, on the official facebook page there is a search function which is makes it very easy and just put 2012 as the year and literally you can analyze and analyze and review the campaign you know step by step but more yeah. importantly my point earlier they are talking about skyfall as uh, as early as last week, which I think is very very important. But you're right; they had a, a 12 month campaign on socials, and then finally, fans were rewarded with the first teaser trailer in May 2012. Yeah, and and you know the the trailer is quite dark. You know, it's it chooses quite a lot of the darker shots from the film. And it almost creates this mystique around James Bond. It includes the bit with him jumping into the carriage and adjusting his cufflinks, which are again is is, is very very memorable. But you, you you do you do want to see the film because it, it it's showing there's something a little bit different going on here. Yeah, I mean, we saw expect. Bond unhinged and reacting to the term Skyfall. 
Mm. And that's what, to mm. me, actually, the teaser trailer works better than the normal trailers, which we're going to talk about in a moment. I just like the the intrigue. But from May, bear in mind that the, the release was late October, November 2012. Then soon after, they piggyback, of course you would, the 2012 Olympic Games. And we have yeah. this all incredible moment where James Bond is essentially escorting the Queen for her to officially open the Games. And we see all of us on national television, perhaps internationally, we see the Queen jumping off the helicopter, opening a Newton Jack um, parachute, very much like in uh, in one of the old James Bond with uh, Roger Moore. Then that went, talk about viral marketing. Oh, that that was an absolute genius moment, and and I love that hark back to to the earlier film. I think it was Spy who loved yeah, me you're that, right, that, yeah, yeah. That, that had that in. Uh, I mean, it was great, and uh, you know, I think I think I remember watching the opening of the uh, of the Olympics purely because I wanted to see this scene with the Queen that had been that had been um, teased in advance. Now, perhaps, uh, unfortunately for the for the marketers, the video of Bond and the Queen jumping off the helicopter has been viewed more often than the trailers themselves, but that's the way it goes. <laughs> so the day after, we have the TV um, campaign, 30-second spots, but soon after, we have the international trailer, much longer than the teaser trailer, uh, understandably so, and in my view, not as good because it gives a lot away. You know, literally, the, the movie is summarized almost chronologically and we can see what's going to happen to bond but it still doesn't take away the pleasure of watching the two and a half hour film but i thought the international trailer could uh, have done be more intrigue perhaps yeah I, I don't like it when the trailers effectively give the whole plot away <laughs> and mm. i think this one did uh, so the teaser trailer for me was much was much more teasing I guess. No, absolutely. Then, so the social media continues, the PR, the press, and so on. But of course, in October 2012, the month, give or take, before the release of the film, we have Adele's song, Skyfall, blasted all of the radio stations around the world. And what a song. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, as you said before, it was um, it was released on the 50th anniversary of the original James Bond film, Dr. No, they called it James Bond Day. To me, it was one of the best uh, theme tunes we've had for quite a long time. Um, for those mu musically minded as well, I think it's one of the first James Bond theme tunes for quite a while, which actually includes the 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 hook of the James Bond theme you know da, mm -hmm. da, 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 in the actual melody of the song and if you go way back to from Russia with love goldfinger thunderball they always had that hook within the song to remind you that even though this was sung by Tom Jones or Shirley Bassey or whoever it was it was still a bond theme and they sort of stopped doing that for a while and and I think that Skyfall was the first one for 30 years maybe which actually had snippets of the actual James Bond theme in the actual theme song for the film and therefore I mean people love the song I don't think anybody was unhappy with the song if anything it was really what you wanted for Bond films and then a few weeks mm. later, the really extravagant opening of the movie, the first Bond actually to be shown on IMAX screen in the history of the Bond movies at the Royal Albert Hall, um, which just stunning, stunning premiere. And then the movie has success, the Blu-ray is really soon after and so on. 
Now, you could argue, Roger, that's a pretty good campaign, but no, we also have the no. partners who are adding another layer of excitement from drinks companies to perfume to um, mobile phones, you name it. So I know you've done the research, so kick, kick us off with the first partner then. Well, I mean, this this is where I said I almost went down a rabbit hole. Now, we know that product placement has always been a big thing in Bond films. You know, way back, I can I can remember seeing, um, you know, posters of British Airways in, in uh, Moonraker, for example. And, and even more up to date, when we rewatched Casino Royale recently, I noticed that the phones were... So we're Sony Ericsson's, and and they feature quite heavily in this this film as well. But the scale of product placement within Skyfall is phenomenal, and the amount of effort that the the brands behind those product placements went to to support the marketing of the film are absolutely mind blowing. So, for example, Heineken um, were one of the product placements within the film you'll notice bond swigging from a bottle of heineken now they paid something like 28 million pounds for that product placement in that film and and actually that covered a, a third of the production costs of the film itself just think about that for a moment one bit of product placement covered a third of the production costs of the film and we see all sorts of different things like that. So you've got the Tom Ford tailored suits. You've got the Sony um, hardware all the way through the film. Heineken, I've mentioned. Uh, it, it's it's just incredible. And each of those people then went on to do their own massive marketing campaign around that product placement. So we've got we had a campaign which was called Intelligence Gathered. Which was the uh, which was the Sony one where you've got TV spots with with Daniel Craig as Bond being tracked by a mystery woman and she's using Bravia TV and VAO um, laptops, tablets, Xperia T smartphones, all of that sort of thing. You know the motorbike in the front of the film in the chase in um, in in Morocco. Again, Honda, massive massive push. Uh, around that but I think Pascal the one that stands out for me was the Coca-Cola tie-in yeah they came up with the most genius bit of work so they wanted to unlock the 007 in you they wanted you to be James Bond for a moment and they they set up this uh, this thing in a station in Europe and they were offering free tickets to go and see Skyfall. And it was quite simply a Coca-Cola drinks machine. And when you put your money in, if you wanted to play this game, it would give you 70 seconds to run to a specific part of that station in order to get your free tickets to Skyfall. Now, if you didn't get there in 70 seconds, you didn't get your ticket. If you did, you got your ticket. And so you've got all these people chasing through a station just like james bond would chase a villain through a station to get their tickets and of course they filmed people doing this and did a montage of this and put this thing up on youtube and again like the the uh olympic video this one went absolutely viral again i mean what an absolutely genius idea and they obviously spent a lot of money on it but to me Skyfall was a marketing effort by the distributors, but it, what was remarkable about it was things like this being done by the product placement partners, and some of their executions were 
off the scale. And what was interesting for me, it felt as though, because, you know, for me, what, with the Bond franchise, it's probably the only movies that get away with product placement to the degree that it does. Uh, it's almost yeah. as if we are complicit in, in accepting it. But the brands had immense fun with their marketing. So it's not as if it was, well, we, we, we are sponsoring um, bonds. If you take Heineken, if you take Sony, if you take Honda, they did adverts using their brand but at the end it was the call to action was to go and see the film it wasn't yeah. to go and buy more beers or buy more computers and i thought that was really really elegant in the execution even though it was dead obvious so with the heineken one uh if it would follow the story of, of this young man looking a little like a spy and he's being chased by a buddy on the train there's little nods to all the uh, previous james bond movie including dr no and at the end he reaches the um, the bar inside the train where we see James Bond himself, Donald Craig, giving him a bottle of Heineken and disappearing, leaving it to deal with the baddies. I thought that was very clever. Sony, you mentioned it, you know, this woman tracking him, and at the end he says, looking for someone and using different... At the time as well, I had a Sony Vio, and I felt so good that I had yeah. the same laptop as James Bond, I can't tell you. But with Honda, what they did very cleverly as well was the adverts in and around... Um, mechanics targeting obviously motorbike lovers and they were part of the the, the team that put together the bond in motion exhibition and um, that yeah. uh, celebrating 50 years of bond vehicles at Bewley near not far from, from London and they use it for a four-month campaign so everybody played the game it wasn't like you know they were trying to say right well let's let's do more of the sales push using bond they were saying they were complicit in creating supplementary form of marketing that fitted superbly with the traditional let's call it that you know filmmakers um, effort and that to me that's what made the skyfall marketing campaign special because everybody was working together pushing the movie in the same direction and it makes me realize now the consequences of all the delays that have been applied mm. to no time to die because i've read you know there was a there's a similar level of product placement within this film and presumably there's brands out there who have got campaigns maybe similar to coca-cola honda did before they've got things ready to go and they've had to hold back on them for obvious reasons and i believe that certain scenes within the film have had to be reshot or even after affected in some ways to update the products that were in the film when it was originally filmed two years ago to the more up-to-date version so that the product placements can still work yeah so 2012 what a special year for bond 50 year anniversary the games taking place in london with the eyes of the world onto you and of course, just to wrap up our review of this campaign, it was, it was only natural that Visit Britain would then milk it for another year after that. Bond is Great Britain was the slogan yes. that went around pretty much everywhere. And we had, of course, that campaign that sustained it. And it just feels like not only, like I said, is it a great movie, we love the movie, but I just had enough recollection of the marketing campaign to know that this was a great addition to film marketing. Yeah, no, this this has been so exciting because I don't think I've ever come across a film before where it was such an amazing collaboration between the distributors and their partners 
a whole plethora of different marketing campaigns targeting different products and different people, but all coming together with the one aim of getting people to sit in a cinema and watch this film Skyfall. Yeah, and that's the lesson. We can all take advantage of anniversaries. We can all take advantage of events around this. We can all bring together partners to kind of join on this on this um, marketing push, we just need to engage that imagination. So, thanks again, Roger, for doing the research on on the Skyfall. It's been a pleasure to discuss it with you, and of course, I'll be watching it tonight. <laughs> Absolutely right. Everyone, this has been episode 49 of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. Thank you so much for your ongoing support. Please leave comments, suggestions in the usual places. Until the next one, go out there and make sure your marketing is done right. I was Pascal Pintoni and he was Roger Edwards. Mm-hmm.